Today on Garnet and Great. I had a greatest seat in the in the stadium. I'd, I'd turn around, pitch the ball to, to Sammy Smith or Dexter Carter and watch them run, or I, I can drop back and see all those guys protect for me and these receivers getting open, flying by uh, defenders. So when you got talent like that, my job is just to be like a point guard, get the ball to those guys and let them work. Today, meet one of the great Noel quarterbacks of the 1980s, leading FSU to an 11-1 record and number two in the nation. And still remembered for an amazing come-from-behind finish in the 87 Fiesta Bowl win against Nebraska. And then for an encore, throwing for over 53,000 yards as he became one of the all-time leading passers in the Canadian League. But way before all that, FSU nearly missed on signing a guy named Danny McManus. So how did Danny Mack, a South Florida high school sensation, go from being lukewarm on the Seminoles one day to being 100% locked in and committed the next? Florida State wasn't even on the map for me. From the end of my junior year into my senior year, there was my brother was coaching at the University of Pittsburgh. University of Florida was after me, um, Alabama. And those were about the only schools. Miami started a little bit, but that year they ended up getting Testaverde, Kozar, and Vanderway. But Florida State came down to watch one of our other players play. But in that game, I was able to have a pretty good game in front of Coach Amato and Coach Bowden. And then uh, the big one that kind of made it all happen was one day we had a home visit from Coach Bowden and Coach Amato, and Burt Reynolds came along with them. So once my mom saw Burt getting out of the car and coming into the house, it was pretty much a done deal that I was going to end up being a Florida State Seminole. Did Burt stay in touch after you'd committed? When I was at Florida State, when we had Burt Reynolds Hall uh, being named after him, he came up, brought a bunch of his friends with him. Uh, we stayed in contact. And even when I was in the Canadian Football League, I would get letters from uh, from Burt at a condo in Vancouver, British Columbia, to let me know that there was a Seminole even up here in Canada watching me play. So, uh it, you know, it, it was nice. It was nice to, to get a letter from him and to, to know what a great support that he was for our Florida State football program and the things that he definitely helped uh, helped us out with there in Tallahassee with the dorm and coming on road trips with us uh, our senior my, my senior year and, and uh, just having a great time being able to rub shoulders with him. So, Danny, what's your favorite memory of playing at FSU? My favorite memory is, it's, you know, everyone thinks it'd be the Fiesta Bowl, um, my last game, but my favorite one was my senior year at Auburn, playing there. Uh, last time I played there, it was uh, my redshirt sophomore year, and things didn't go too well. I was I had the dizzy spells going. I didn't know what, really what much was going on, and that was the final game that I played my redshirt sophomore year. But to go back there two years later in my senior season with a great bunch of guys uh, and going in there try and beat Auburn at their place was going to be tough. But the guys responded. We put in uh, 60 great minutes and walked out of that stadium with the, with a victory. And that paved the way for us to keep rolling all the way into the Fiesta Bowl and at least have a shot for the national championship. Um, but that didn't happen, and we ended up finishing number two. And what game left, uh, left the most painful memory in your mind, either in terms of a loss or taking nasty hits on the field? Well, loss-wise would have been the Miami one. Uh, the senior year, not to be able to finish that one out, being up 19 to three going into the fourth quarter. Uh, most painful one would have been Memphis State, my redshirt sophomore year when I got blindsided, side ahead, 
don't remember the hit because I was out before I hit the ground, but um, it set me back a bit. I, I missed a, a good year of uh, practicing, being around my teammates, uh, mainly in doctor's offices, uh, doing CAT scans. But the great training staff at Florida State with Doc Falls and, and Randy Orvitz got me back up uh, and rolling, and uh, they made sure everything was uh, was fine, and I was able to get back on that field as quickly as possible. With their help, I think uh, everybody involved from the coaching staff to the players to the training staff gave me every opportunity to get back on the football field my junior season and uh, be able to start playing some football midway through that junior season. So, Danny, were concussions ever a factor during all those years playing quarterback? With the classified concussions now, I would say yes, I had a few. Uh, Being dinged is being concussed nowadays. I had, I've tried to figure out, maybe I had about a half a dozen what would be classified as concussions now. But other than that, no, I, you know, I've been very lucky. I've always had great offensive linemen in front of me to keep me upright, but it's football. I mean, you're, it's a collision sport. And then the next, you know, 19 years, I come away with one or two concussions and, and have a 17-year pro career. So, Do you think the referees on the field are trying to protect quarterbacks better today than they were back then? Yeah, I think so. Because it is a, a spot where you're you never really have a chance to brace yourself if you're in the pocket for a hit. There's always that, you know, everyone talks about if I did, if I can wait just a half a second longer, this receiver will get open. Well, that half a second that you wait, there's two defensive linemen coming at you. And the chest hits are fine. The waist up hits are fine. It's the ones where you start to get around the, the knees and, and in, you know, the neck area where we don't have a chance as quarterbacks to protect ourselves because we're in our throwing motion. We got to let it rip. And uh, I think it's a good thing that they're protecting uh, the quarterbacks a little bit more. Some hits, you look at it and say, ah, oh, there's no way you could have got hurt by that. And it's probably true. But then there are some that you got to look at and say, that doesn't belong in football. Uh, you don't want to see that happen to not only just a quarterback, but, you know, even a, a receiver or a defensive back that gets hit like that you know, from the waist up or from the neck up and uh, takes a headshot. You want to try to eliminate that as much as possible. Well, in 1986, during a game at Miami, instead of being hit by a defensive lineman, you actually hit him. It was just a throwing a seam route, and I just ended up hitting the helmet, a Miami Defender helmet. They just came down on it. There's not much you can do about it. you got to follow through with your motion to get the right throw, but it came right down on, on his helmet. Ended up blowing up the the backside of my thumb and all swelled up. Uh, I held uh, for kicks, and it was a little bit tough to do that. So it was just one of those things that, you know, it wasn't letting me be able to continue with, as a quarterback, uh, be able to get the whole throw in motion because I lost feelings in my uh, – thumb and my uh, index finger to be able to, to grip the ball right. So that's another unfortunate one because we were moving pretty well down there at the Orange Bowl uh, against Benny Testaverde and his guys. You had a great career at FSU with the possible exception of Miami. They always uh, gave us a battle. And one of the things that they always said, we respected Florida State, but like you guys, we hated Florida as well. So it was uh, it was nice competition that we had on the field. There's nothing that was ever dirty. It was just out there playing uh, full 60 minutes because we had respect. They had respect for our coach and we had respect for their coach. And I think the way that they taught their players how to play football was very similar to the way Coach Bowden and his staff taught their players how to play football. And we just wanted to go out there and play hard for 60 minutes. And they understood that. They're all close games and it comes down to one or two plays. You just don't know when those plays are going to happen. 
Well, the game, of course, you'll always be remembered for is that uh, Fiesta Bowl when you beat Nebraska, 1987 Fiesta Bowl. The winning TD came at the end of a 97-yard drive with time running out, and it was a catch in the end zone on a fourth down last gas play. Yeah, it was everything came together for the defense to get the turnover at the three-yard line and for us to go on the field and, and just keep moving the ball against the tough Nebraska defense. They were highly rated that year and things were clicking. We had a lot of guys making plays up and down the field. Um, Dexter Carter making plays, Lawrence Dossey, Terry Anthony. They're, you know Everybody was out there doing their job and the guys up front were giving us time to, to work downfield. And then when you come into that type of situation, you knew Coach Bowden was going to go for it. And we had to. We were running out of time in the game and you get Nebraska back the ball. Chances of you getting it back are going to be slim. So he called the play for uh, Pat Carter to run a, a 10-yard in and, and Ronald Lewis to run a 15-yard in. And uh, everybody seemed to jump on Pat and left uh, Ronald in the back of the end zone uh, wide open. So I did what Coach Rick always told me to do, just step, throw it, and let it go. Uh, once it leaves your fingers, there's nothing you can do about it. And uh, Ronald made a great catch for a touchdown, and we, we were able to hold on to, to get the victory against Nebraska in the Fiesta Bowl and then sit and wait and see if we have a shot at the national championship you know, after the Orange Bowl. Do you remember there was a lot of discussion or even debate about the play call with you and Bowden and the offensive coordinator, Wayne McDuffie? I think everybody was pretty confident that, that was our number one play. And um, you know, I know that the name is 460 Dig. The route combination is to have Pat use his body against the smaller guys. and But he had the strong safety and the linebacker. He he took up two guys and he got the attention of the free safety that jumped towards him as well. That's what left Ronald in the back of the end zone by himself. So that was our number one play going in that situation. We felt comfortable with it. And it was very calm on the sidelines. So we were all ready to go with that play. And uh, Coach Bound said, let's go get him. Throw it like you can throw it and have Ronald catch it like you can catch it. And it all worked out perfect. Or was that something Nebraska hadn't seen much of during the game? I don't think we ran it that much against them. They would have seen it during the year because we, we had run it quite a bit um, during the season. And it was a lot of uh, second and eights, you know, third and sevens, and, and just just enough to get us uh, the first down. And we've always seen to, to, to get it into Pat uh, on, the, on his tight end 10-yard in route. So they probably seen it. They probably practice it. But – if that read is taken, Coach Rick always said, go to number two. And that's uh, the number two read is uh, Ronald right behind him. And he was in the right spot, right time. O-line did a good job giving me that extra half second to go to the second read and, and deliver the football. And you seem to have a special connection with Ronald Lewis. He'd caught so many, you know, important touchdown passes during your career. I always remember as one him catching in the corner of the end zone against Miami. But the one that I missed him on, I always remember as well, too. And again, he was in the back of the end zone on that two-point conversion right after that catch, sitting there all by himself as Pat Carter drew three people to him on the in the back corner of the end zone. So if I would have went to the second read on that one, would have got another one into Ronald there. But I think that's what helped me in the Fiesta Bowl is don't always, you know, if your first read's not there, get to your second quickly. And if I would have done that against Miami, maybe we win that one. But I made sure I did it against the... Nebraska and the Fiesta Bowl to, to, to get that win uh, for sure. And with the talent on that 86 team, it's no wonder you came so close to winning at all. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, we had some great talent from the outside to the running backs to the linemen. I mean, uh, there's I had a greatest seat in the, in the stadium. I'd, I'd turn around, pitch the ball to 
to Sammy Smith or Dexter Carter and watch them run, or I can drop back and see all those guys protect for me and these receivers getting open, flying by a defender. So when you got talent like that, my job is just to be like a point guard, get the ball to those guys and let them work. Uh, I was not the, the fleet of foot, so with the ball in my hand, it was going to be there for a while. So I wanted to make sure I got rid of it, get it to those guys, and uh, get points for the Seminoles. You really had a way of commanding the huddle. I think that's the number one thing. Coach uh, Bowden is uh, a big part of that. And with him playing the position of quarterback, he always mentioned to us, passing down the hallways, that the confidence of the guys looking at you is going to depend on how you look at them. You know, whether the confidence of the play you call, the confidence of you being able to do your job is how you determine your facial features, how you, your voice goes. You know, always remember that there's 10 set of eyeballs looking back at you and they're able to read you really quick. They know whether this is a good play or this is not a good play. And all your job as a quarterback is to have each player in that huddle play just a percentage better than what they are. If you can raise their level to play a little bit better than what they are, going to get this play a great chance to be successful. And that's all I try to do. I try to be an extension of Coach Bowden on the field, but he has to stay on the sidelines, and then you have to bring some little bit of him out onto the field, and I try to do that in the huddle. Well, speaking of greats, how about Deion Sanders? He was one of your teammates. Is he is he the best that you ever played with? No question. And, you know, people didn't see the hard work that he put in. The, the summer before my senior year would have been his junior year, we would have the seven-on-sevens down in the stadium. He would be in charge of getting the defensive guys. I'd be in charge of getting the offensive guys. There was no coaches there. We were there from 5 o'clock till 7 o'clock. It was some of the best practices that we had ever. Uh, it was just guys going after each other. There was a, you know, a lot of talking going on, but there was a lot of competition going on. And I think those are the things that make a difference between guys that are good and guys that are great. He wanted to stay out there and compete. He wanted to stay longer than anybody. And those are the things that you look at my business at the scouting purposes is that who loves the game? Who wants to get that little extra effort to be better and not only be better for themselves, but be better for the ball club. And Dion did that. He helped us be a really good team in 1987. When you get guys like Paul McGowan, Dion Sanders, Martin Mayhew on that defensive side that are pulling guys to raise your level of play a little bit, offensively, you're going to rise to the occasion. And all of our guys responded as well. Why did you guys have such great chemistry? What we had, we had great guys that turned into outstanding men. They all cared about each other. Uh, they all wanted the best for each other. And I think that materializes some great friendships and we, more than what was on the football field. We knew what we were there for was to get an education to play football. More importantly, we, we developed friendships that we get together once every three years. It's like we just talked the other day. It just, it's one of those things is that bond that you have. Just a great group of men that I've been able to be associated with myself at Florida State for five years. So you've probably got a favorite Coach Bowden story, right? It's my redshirt freshman year, and we're in South Carolina. They're beating us up pretty good. And he calls up to Coach Mark Rick and says, I want to get Fred in the game. Coach Rick goes, Fred, Fred who? You know, Fred, I want to get him in the game. And then, so I think he's saying Fred Jones. I run over to Fred Jones, bring him over, and because I'm the guy carrying the, the Coach Bowden's cord. And Coach Bowden goes, no, no, I don't want Fred. I want the other Fred. And Coach Rick goes, who are you talking about, Coach? He goes, I want Fred McManus. I want to put him in the game. <laughs> Coach Rick goes, well, his name's Danny, and he's that guy holding the cord standing right next to you. So ever since that day, even with Coach Rick today, if I send him a text or leave him a message or whatever, he'll call back and call me Fred. 
And they all do it. I mean, from Brad Johnson, Peter Tom, Casey Weldon, they all do it. Chip Ferguson. I am not. My name is no longer Danny Rondam. It's always Fred. (laughs) So in 1988, after that Fiesta Bowl, you go from a team with a spear on the helmet to one with an arrowhead on the helmet, the Kansas City Chiefs. I guess that's before they did the chop or were they doing the tomahawk chop then? No, that was before. Yeah, they they haven't. They didn't start that yet. Yeah, it was it was good. It was a great experience. Got to learn behind Bill Kinney and Steve DeBerg. I was really good at writing down plays. Didn't see much action on the field. And then uh, the, you know the next year, we had a chance to go to training camp with Ron Jaworski. So there's a lot of great quarterback minds that I was able to to learn some things from and develop my game a little bit to the understanding of what it took to be a professional athlete. And do you think you got a fair shot with the Chiefs? Yeah, my rookie year was a, was a chance to to show what I could do at practice. So when you get a coaching change, you're kind of the odd guy out because you're part of the old guy's system. And then when the new guy comes in, he has his preferences of what guys he, he wants. And Coach Schottenheimer had a couple quarterbacks that uh, he had at Cleveland. And lowest guy on the totem pole was the first guy out. And I understood that. It's a, it's a business now. It's not you're not on scholarship. When an opportunity came, whether it was going to be the NFL or somewhere else, that I was going to jump at it. And that opportunity came in the CFL, and I wanted to keep playing, and I enjoyed playing the game, so I jumped up to Winnipeg. During that long career, you must have played for, what, half the teams in the Canadian League? It's almost easier to tell you ones I didn't play for, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I got, uh, let me see, I think five teams in. It was started out in Winnipeg, then over to uh, BC Lions in Vancouver, to Edmonton. Over to Hamilton was the longest stint I was there, and then uh, finished up in Calgary. So it was almost like a full circle. But it was 17 years of playing up there. Enjoyed every bit of it. I had an opportunity to possibly come back to the NFL, and my brother gave me some good advice. He said, question I have is, do you want to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond? I love the CFL. I love the people of Canada. Their fan support is very good. So I ended up staying up in Canada and made a career out of it. I believe you're still in the top five all-time career passing leaders in CFL statistics, right? You just go out there and play. You don't think about the numbers. I never really sat down and looked at them. And, you know, when you get done playing, you get a chance to go back and say, okay, was it worth it? And I can say without a doubt, it was worth it. I, I just enjoyed the, the whole experience of just playing football at the pro level and, again, making some great relationships with my teammates up there in Canada. And now I got guys that live in Canada, I got guys that live in the States, I got guys that live over in Europe that, uh, that I play football with. You're also in the Canadian Hall of Fame, the CFL Hall of Fame, as you are the FSU Hall of Fame. The nice part is you never get cut from that team. I don't think they can take you out of the Hall of Fame, so I don't have to worry about ever getting cut again. So. It's a great honor. I mean, and, and it's not just me in there. It's all the guys that I played with at South Broward High School to Florida State to all my the, the teams that I played for at the pro level with Kansas City and, and the five teams in the CFL. Uh, every person that was in that locker room with me, um, every person that was on the field and supporting staff and all that were all part of it. I just happened to be around some great people that provided me a chance to, to get into the Hall of Fame. So talk about the uh, the learning curve, that transition, you know, when you're going to Canadian football from the American game. I would tell you that the biggest difference is uh, when I first got up there was the footballs. The footballs were a little bit bigger. And so once you get a feel and start having to throw those things, uh, you look out at the field and realize that it's another 12 yards wider. It uh, goes from uh, 53 yards in U.S. ball to 65 yards in CFL. you got to get used to throwing that wide side out route is not easy to do but 
you know, once you get there playing and you get the, the ball snaps, it's it's football, and you go from there and you just start rolling. At that point, you start doing what you've always been programmed to do from when you first started football to try to move the chains and stay on the field as an offense and put points up on the board. And after all those years playing quarterback for so many teams, you make the transition from the field up to the front office. It was a little different. It took a, a little while to get to that point. I retired from football and did what every retired football guy does. He gets into television and tries to watch the game from up in the booth, thinking that he knows how to watch it. But it was fun to be up there uh, still talking about football um, and kind of made that nice, smooth transition to the, the, the next step. And that was thinking about coaching. So I volunteered to coach with the Hamilton Tiger Cats the following year and uh, then ended up having a coaching change. And they asked me to stay on to be the quarterback coach. So I did that. I realized that I wasn't quite ready to get into the chalkboard and, and coaching stuff yet. I wasn't that far away from playing. But there were some scouting opportunities open within the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And they asked me if I'd be interested in doing that. And Took off from there. I had a great opportunity at Hamilton to be the uh, Southeast Director of Scouting and then turned into U.S. Scouting. And, and then Winnipeg called and asked to be if I could be their Assistant General Manager, Director of U.S. Scouting. So I jumped all over that and been there for the last five years. But is it mainly identifying prospects that may not make it in the NFL? Yeah, we, we talked to you know free agents that are just coming out of college, uh, free agents that have might have been into into NFL camps and got cut early. Uh, we do uh, NFL gives uh, the CFL access to their training camps. We're allowed to go in there and just scout the guys, watch film, get an evaluation, and talk to them about who they think might stay, who they think may not stay. And the most important part is really catching the guys at the right time when they're tired of being cut and now all they want to do is play and we give them the opportunity they come up they play for a couple of years and if the chance comes that they want to go back down that's great but usually in those two years they see what the cfl is they fall in love with it as i did some guys have gone back to the nfl that's the biggest thing that we try to do is really we want them to move on to the NFL. There's no doubt in that. It helps us in our scouting. That helps out. And we do it as well. We talk with the arena guys because the guys need to be playing football. That's the only way you're going to get better is by playing the game. So in your scouting job, have you seen the quality of players coming from FSU change that much over the years? We don't see too many Florida State guys. We do have one uh, on our roster this year uh, that will be coming to training camp. That's Travis Rudolph. So we're looking forward to, to him coming up to to Winnipeg and uh, see how he fits into our offensive line and receiver position. Well, thanks for your time, Danny, and for all those great memories in Garnet and Gold. I mean, Florida State set me up beautifully for, uh, you know, a great career and a great life. And, you know, I, every time I go back there, I, I admire the changes that have been made there and see some of the people that are still there. And, and just to be able to know that I was able to walk through this campus and uh, do the best that I could to, to help Florida State get on the map and and just to have fun. I mean, it was a great place to get an education and to spend five years of my life uh, developing more as a person and, and learning more of how to be a man from Coach Bowden. Garnet and Great is produced by Rich Holton, FSU class of 71. Thanks for listening. Until next time, go nose.